Like I said earlier, last week we started a new series called The Way, and the significance of that term is that the earliest Christians went by that descriptor as to who they were. They called themselves followers of the way. And what they meant by that is that they were followers of the way of Jesus. In other words, they had placed their hope, their trust, their faith in Jesus, and they were trying to be like Jesus. They were trying to live lives that were like Jesus. And so they were calling themselves this because that's how they saw themselves. That was the identity that they took on for themselves. And later, they were uh, kind of replaced that name with the term Christian. And, and really, Christian is kind of a synonym almost with the way because the word Christian means like little Christs, people who are like Christ. Uh, and so they were still calling themselves as people who were following the way of Jesus, who were being like Christ. Uh, the name just kind of changed over time. So we're looking th- through Lent this year as we prepare for Easter uh, at the life of Jesus and seeing what things in his life and his ministry, specifically in those three years which he did public ministry, defined who he was, defined his way. And so that we can, as Christians, begin to act like him and to seek after him in the same way that the early Christians did. So let's look last week, a we, little recap. We saw Jesus started his public ministry with a baptism and with going off into the desert and being tempted for 40 days. Now, I, I kind of remarked last week that there's some real oddities about this, those two stories. First thing is that John the baptizer, who was out there, who's a cousin of Jesus, who's six months older than Jesus, he's out there in the, in the wilderness, and he's fulfilling prophecies. He's the voice calling in the wilderness, preparing the way for God's Messiah. And yet, what he's proclaiming and what he's doing is he's baptizing people, dunking them into the Jordan River, into a baptism of repentance. What that meant is that people were coming from all over. They were hearing John preach about the coming Messiah and about the coming of God's kingdom. And as they were convicted that they themselves weren't following after or seeking after God's kingdom, they would change their mind. They would have a metanoia, a transformation of their heart, of their being, and they would decide they were going to follow after the kingdom of God. They were going to be ready for this Messiah. And that's when they were dunked. It was this representation of that change that was happening in them. And yet Jesus comes out to John in the desert and he says, baptize me. And the weird thing about that is Jesus didn't need a change of heart, right? Jesus is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is living uh, a life that is absolutely in dedication and devotion to his father. And we see that from the one story we get even from his teen years that he was not with his family, got lost, but they found him in the temple and he was teaching, right? And he was teaching like one who had authority, even though he was only 13 years old. And so Jesus had lived a life of devotion to God. And in fact, we know in hindsight that Jesus was God incarnate, that Jesus was God himself that had come and become a human being. So what did he need to be baptized in repentance for? And we looked at that and saw that it was really Jesus identifying with us in all of humanity, not just with the Jewish people, but with all of humanity, the Gentiles included. And he was identifying himself with all of humanity because he knew that he was going to be a representative for humanity and that he was going to be the savior for all of humanity. 
And then he's led out into the desert, which I kind of said this was a weird thing, because why would God start Jesus' public ministry with 40 days of silence and away from the public, right? Couldn't, couldn't the start of his ministry, when this grandiose sign happened when he was baptized and the Spirit comes down and a voice is from heaven, couldn't that have been like after his 40 days of temptation? So there's this weird like PR mishap of God where he, he missed an opportunity to like use the momentum of the baptism going forward. Instead, he brings him out into silence. Yet, I think there's significance to Jesus in the, in the desert being tempted as well. That again, it's Jesus' closeness to all of humanity, that he was tempted like we are tempted, and yet he chooses to obey and he chooses to surrender himself to the Father throughout that entire experience. And so God is preparing him to be not just the Messiah of the Jewish people, but to be the Messiah, the King, the Lord, the Savior of all of humanity. So this week we go a little bit deeper into Jesus's ministry. As he's beginning his public ministry, he begins to do some miraculous things that he gets attention for. And he begins to heal people. So people who are sick, who are blind, or who have been crippled, or who've had diseases, all kinds of things. We see tons and tons of healings throughout the entire gospel story. They're coming to Jesus because they're hearing about this new healer in town who's able to heal people of anything. And so they're flocking to him. And there's one point where Jesus is staying at Peter's house, Peter who lived in Capernaum off the Sea of Galilee, and he's staying in the house, which by the way, uh, you're able to go to the very spot, and they're pretty dang sure that there's this one spot where there's a first century Jewish home there, uh, and it's underneath like this big spaceship looking thing. It's a Catholic church that has been built up above it uh, so that they could dig down and and go into the ruins. Um, And there's this house there, and in this house, Jesus spent much time ministering to people, teaching people. This house is only like 625 square feet. And people were being brought from the entire region to this place to be healed by Jesus. One of the first miracles we see Jesus do in the Gospels is heal a man with a withered hand in the synagogue in Capernaum, which is just a stone's throw from Peter's house up away from the beach a little further. So what an amazing story we hear about Jesus. And yet, in the first century, it was not uncommon for there to be teachers who were healers. In fact, think about it. Is it really uncommon today for there to be teachers out there who claim to be able to heal people and to perform miracles? Is it? No, we see it on TV. Just turn over to one of those Christian channels uh, if you want a good laugh. And um, you can see various programs where there's people who are claiming to be healers, and they can point to testimonials. They can point to what they would say is real evidence that they've healed people. And I don't know. Maybe they have. Maybe they have, right? But there was all kinds of people just like that in Jesus's day who claimed to be able to heal people. So Jesus wasn't unique. And yet, Jesus seemed to gather people from the surrounding regions to come and to seek his healing in a way that we don't see in a lot of the other historical records. And so Jesus seemed to have some kind of authenticity to the way he was doing what he was doing. And if we believe Jesus' claims, if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is actually God in the flesh, God as a human being, then he should be able to have the power and the authority to do whatever he wants in this physical realm, right? And so if we believe his claims then we would believe that these healings and these stories of these healings that have been passed down to us are true. And so Jesus heals 
dozens, hundreds of people. In today's story, we see that he heals two people in kind of one short jaunt. He's teaching out somewhere, and, and he's preaching, and a leader from one of the local synagogues comes and begs him that his daughter had died, and he says, please, come with me. Come with me and save my daughter. If you just place your hands on her, I know that you can raise her from the dead. What, a, what an amazing thing to believe, right? How many of you, if you had a, a loved one who died, would come to me and say, Chris, would you come and place? I know that if you just place your hands on them, they're going to come back to life. No, that would be crazy, right? And yet this man believed that Jesus could heal his daughter, and in desperation he comes and he begs Jesus to come, a man of authority, a man of respect within the community, a man of education. And Jesus leaves with him and he goes, but, but on the way he's interrupted. He's interrupted by a woman who has been suffering from internal bleeding or some kind of bleeding for uh, many, many years. She, she's had a hemorrhage for, they said, 12 years. And in this society, this would have made her kind of an outcast because when you have, touch blood or are around anything with blood, in the Jewish culture, it would make you unclean. And anything you touched, therefore, would be made unclean because you yourself were unclean. And in order for you to be made clean, you would have to go through these processes of these ritual washings and all kinds of things that if she was continuously bleeding, wouldn't even been any point to because she would have been unclean the minute she finished all the rituals. And so this woman had been li living as an outcast, as somebody who no one would touch and who had to kind of be outside of the norm of society because she was seen to be unclean. And she sees and knows that Jesus is coming through town and she decides she's going to take her chance. And she's just going to touch just the, the edge. If she could just touch just barely of his garment, she believes that she'll be healed. And she reaches out, and we know from the other gospel accounts of this, that when she touches his garment, what the other gospel account tells us is that Jesus feels the power go out of him. What a weird thing. Have you ever felt the power go out of you? I mean, I've been tired and sick and stuff, right? But I've never been like, ooh, the power just went out of me. And so Jesus, who knows how many times he's experienced this, that he knew what it was, right? But he felt that something significant had just happened, and he turns, and he sees her there. And he begins to minister to her, and he begins to speak to her kind words. Woman, your faith has made you clean. And then she's healed. Twelve years as an outcast, as somebody nobody else could touch, and yet she made the choice, the risky choice of touching this strange healer who was in her town, and she was cleaned forever. Jesus shares his words with her, and then he continues on with his ministry to the young ruler, leader of the synagogue. He gets to that house, and the people there are already playing dirges. They're their hope is gone. This girl has died. She's lost. She's a lost cause. And Jesus comes in and tells them all to leave. He says, get out of here. She's not dead. She's only asleep. And they begin to laugh at him. <laughs> okay, she's only asleep. These people were familiar with death. They, weren't, they aren't like us, where if someone was really ill, we might think that they're dead. They lived around death all the time. People died in their homes, not in hospitals. And people died often, and kids died often. 
So they knew death, and they said, no, this woman's dead. This, this girl is dead, Jesus. You're, you're, you're laughable for what you're saying. And Jesus gets them out of there, and then he goes and he grabs the girl by her hand, and she comes back to life. Two amazing stories of Jesus' power of healing. The first thing I really want to focus on in this from these stories is that Jesus does not make a distinction of class. Notice this. Notice this. A, a man, we, we tend to think of Jesus' ministry only being to the poor, right? How many of you, when you think of Jesus, think that he has a special heart for the poor, he's always around the poor, and he's always kind of chastising the rich? I tend to get that image in my mind. And it, it's somewhat warranted because we see that quite a bit in the gospel stories. But here's a man with great authority, probably fairly wealthy because of his authority, because of his education, and he comes and he asks Jesus in desperation and in faith for Jesus to come and to heal his daughter. And does Jesus say, no, you are rich. Away from me, rich man. No. Jesus says, okay. And he goes with him. But notice also in this story, while Jesus is on his way, a woman who is of a lower class, most likely, and is of somebody who would have been in a kind of an outcast type role because she was unclean and she couldn't get clean comes and touches him and Jesus not only heals her kind of maybe unbeknownst to him but he stops and recognizes her right he's on the way he's got a mission he's going somewhere else how many of you have ever been so busy that on the way you could be seeing other things that are going on but you miss it Okay, then don't judge me every time you see me running down the hall and I don't say hi to you. I'm very narrow-minded and focused when I have something on my mind and I'm going to do it. Uh, and so just bump me and say, uh, say hello and just remind me I'm being a jerk at the moment. So that's okay. But Jesus notices even somebody who's an outcast in the process of going in another mission to heal a little girl. Jesus doesn't make distinctions. We see this all over the stories of the Gospels. Notice that Je Jesus is described as having meals and dinners with what? Sinners and who? A special class of sinners, tax collectors, IRS agents, right? <clears throat> Back in those days, it w there was not a regimented kind of tax system. There was these people who were locally, they took up a business of collecting the taxes for the local authorities, and they would often charge on top of that for their services, and there was no set amounts, and so they would gouge people. So they were seen as being some of the worst in the worst of society, um, the people that got into it. There's very few honest tax collectors, it seems like, from the impression of the people of the day. And Jesus was regularly seen eating with sinners and tax collectors, but it wasn't just that Jesus was seen eating with sinners and tax collectors. Who else do we regularly see Jesus eating with? Pharisees. Teachers of the law, authorities of the day who no likely were wealthy or at least upper middle class. Right? We see him all the time spending time with the scribes and the Pharisees. Sometimes those, those times where he's with them is interrupted by somebody of the lower classes, right? There's a few stories like that. But we see that he's with those people. He's not making a distinction. He's caring for all that he's coming across in the way that they need to be cared for, whether it's rebuke, or whether it's gentleness, whether it's, whether it's a word of wisdom, whatever it is. He's ministering to them and caring for them when they're in his presence. 
Some years ago, I had a beard almost like this guy's. Some of you have seen my beard almost that long before, and then you tell me, Chris, you need to trim your beard, um, and then I ignore you, and then a couple months later, you usually trim it. But I had this huge beard, and it was, a, it was in the middle of the, that one crazy winter where, um, I don't know, five years ago or so, where we had like minus 20 degree temperatures for like three weeks in a row. Do you remember that? It was so cold outside that no one at the church I was working in wanted to change the sign out front, the marquee, so it just sat there with this title from the last week's sermon on it. And I had been uh, come up with this amazing title for a sermon that I was going to preach that Sunday, and I really wanted it on the board, but nobody would go do it. So I grabbed the keys, I grabbed all the equipment, never done it before, and I went out there and I changed the, the marquee. Now, I was wearing a leather jacket that had a hood on it, and I had the hood up, and I had it drawn around my face, and some of the staff knew that I went out there and did that. So I came in, and we had a staff meeting, and I was freezing cold, because you see, the way you had to change this marquee is you had these little little placards, and I couldn't do it with my gloves, so I had to take my gloves off, and my hands were just like like deep purple. Um, I was afraid that I maybe got some frostbite. So when I came in to the staff meeting, I was just so cold, and I was trying to warm myself up. And another staff member who wasn't there earlier came in and said, what's wrong, Chris? I said, oh, I was just outside. Why were you outside? And everybody then kind of filled this staff member in on what was going on. And this staff member laughed and looked at another staff member and said, oh, my goodness, I just said to so-and-so, why is there a homeless man out there changing our sign? (laughs) That made me feel really good. For a long time, I've had a heart for those who live on the streets. Uh, it started in my early ministry and youth ministry. I'd always take kids downtown in San Jose, and we would make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and we would just go downtown, and we would sit, and we would give homeless member, people who were on the streets, we would give them um, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and then we would sit with them and talk with them. And that was always important to me. It was always important to me because every single time I see somebody who's living on the streets, I'm very aware that most people walk by and don't acknowledge their humanity right? What excuses do we give? Ah, they're just beggars. They're going to go use it on alcohol. They're going to use it this, whatever, blah, 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 blah. We use all these excuses, and some of them might be right, and and sometimes we're just too busy to stop. But mostly what hurts me whenever I do this is when I ignore the humanity of the person who's there on the street. So when I was in ministry in Santa Barbara, I noticed that so many churches in the area were always willing to give money to the homeless ministries of the town, because we had a lot of homeless being a beach town, very nice weather, and we had very lax laws for most of the homeless. They would give money to these missions downtown, but they would hardly ever go and serve with their hands the people who were on the street. And I decided, I'm going to go downtown, I'm going to commit to every single week on a Thursday, I'm going to go and I'm going to serve at this homeless shelter. And as I did that, I learned more and more how important it is that it, we don't just throw money or that we don't just throw food at the problem, but that we treat the people on the street like we would treat anybody else in our lives. That we would give them the dignity of their humanity and that we would love them just like we would love anybody else that we come in contact with. Stop treating them like a member of the environment and start treating them as the image bearer of God that they are. So I got really excited about homeless ministry and started thinking and dreaming of ideas. And I've told it a little bit before that I even dreamt up an idea of planting a church that would help to begin to house some of the homeless people that were on the streets, especially women and young children. 
And I had all these ideas for this. God didn't lead me down that path, but my heart still cries out for the dignity and humanity of those who are on the streets. And this is the model of Jesus. This is the model of Jesus. That everyone we would encounter, that we would never be too busy to treat them like an image bearer of God. And we would never be too haughty to think that they were too low for us to interact with. I remember one church I visited had this amazing ministry and they had homeless in their church every single day of the week for this food service and other stuff. And I asked the director of the program, how many of the, the homeless people end up coming to the church? Oh, no, 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 no. We could never have the homeless people come to the church. Why? Well, it would take hours for me to train them that when they're at the church, they have to act different. They couldn't just take cookies and put them in their pockets. The church members would just be too outraged about that. And I thought, oh my gosh, Lord, please never, never let me serve a church that would act like that. And I don't think I do. You guys are amazing. But what would we do if somebody with those needs that looked homeless walked into our building? Would we give them kindness? Would we give them dignity? Would we treat them the way Jesus would? Or the flip of, this, of that. Remember, Jesus has a rich young ruler come to him and asks him questions, right? Does Jesus turn the rich young ruler away? Say, no, 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 you're not worth my time. You're too wealthy. I'm only here for the poor. Is that what Jesus did? No. He listened. And then he answered his questions. And he answered his questions in specific ways to be gentle and yet to challenge the preconceived notions of this rich young ruler. That his heart would become softened and like God's heart. Would we do the same? Would we treat somebody who comes in here and who's wealthy the same way we would treat somebody who's homeless, as somebody who needs Jesus and minister to them and care for them in the same way that Jesus did and would? Do we make distinctions too much about class when we encounter people to minister to them? Jesus gave faith to those who had lost hope. Jesus gave faith to those who had lost hope. Sometimes before he ever met them, right? Sometimes long before he ever met them, they had heard about this weird, strange teacher who was roaming about the land, and they had heard that he had brought this little girl to life after she had died. They had heard that he had healed this blind man by making mud in the ground. They had heard that he had healed the hand of, of a man that had been withered. He had, that he had healed a man who had been sitting by a pool that was lame for um, 40 years or something. They, they, they heard all these stories, and they began to be filled with the hope that Christ brings us. And so over and over again, we see Jesus make this statement. He says, woman, your faith has made you clean, right? Or he says, your faith, go, your faith has made you clean. But it was a faith that was inspired by Jesus, a faith that Jesus instilled in them because of his very essence, because of his very being, because of his character, and because of how he treated and ministered to people. Jesus gave faith to those who had been utterly lost in their faith. Is that a part of our legacy as the people of God in this place? And following after the way of Jesus, are we a group of people that instills faith 
into people who have utterly lost all hope. Jesus, in this place, this is the pool of Bethesda. It's in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem. Uh, And this is the place where Jesus comes across that man who had been laying on a mat, and, and the pools would get stirred, and they believed that it was an angel stirring the waters. And so they thought that when the waters were stirred, that was when they were most powerful for healing. And so people, when they got stirred, would clamor to get into the pools there at Bethesda. And when they got put in, then they would be healed. And this man had been sitting there, but he had no one around him to help him into the pool. And so every time the pool was stirred, he'd watch as others had loved ones carry them and put them into the pool, and he would sit there, and he would become more and more hopeless. And yet, he's still there, right? And Jesus sees him. Who knows how many times Jesus has been to this pool and healed and ministered to others, and he sees him, and he maybe recognizes him. That guy's been sitting there for a long time. And he comes up to him and says, Do you even want to be healed? The man says, of course I want to be healed. The man has no faith in Jesus at all, right? Does he express, well, then heal me, teacher. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He says, of course I want to be healed. Jesus says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he's healed. Sometimes we think that the faith needs to come first before the healing comes. And yet in this example, Jesus heals someone and it gives the man faith, right? Do we give the same kind of care and love for our neighbors, our coworkers? Do we watch and do we see when they have lost hope and when they are depressed, that they need encouragement, that they need faith to move on? And do we stop whatever we're doing and do we minister to them in that time? Because that is what Jesus did. And if we want to be like Jesus, that's what we would do. Jesus says this, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell that mountain over there to move and it would move. Now, we tend to think of this as a magic power, right? If I could just muster up the faith, just a tiny amount of faith, I could then do miraculous things like move mountains. But that's not the meaning of this this teaching. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, what it means In Jesus' terms, faith is not just an intellectual ascent, not just a belief that something can happen. It is an absolute and pure and utter surrender and trust of the one who you are placing your faith in. And so if you have the faith of a mustard seed, it means that you are so in tuned with God's heart that you know even just a little bit of what God wants. And so you would only ask for what God wants. And so therefore, if you were to say to a mountain, move from here to there, it would be because you trusted and knew God so well that you knew he wanted that mountain moved. And then God would do it. Are our lives characterized by that kind of faith? Do we know God so well that we only claim And we only do what he's calling us to. Or do we haphazardly just fall through life, tripping over things and somehow accidentally ending up on the right thing? Or not on the right thing? Where do we place our faith? Let us be a people of faith. 
Let us be a people who makes no discrimination and who cares for this world the same way that Jesus cares for the world as we move into the future.